Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now, on with the show. Hey, you! And welcome to episode 22 of One Step Beyond, a fortnightly show that encourages you to take a step outside your comfort zone and enrich your life. And in case this motto is starting to feel just a little familiar and even tired, I assure you that today's guest takes that definition to the absolute limit. His name is James Rose. And he has battled some of the most difficult circumstances you can imagine to make it to the other side and into the record books in the process. You'll hear our transatlantic conversation in just a few moments. My name is Tony Fletcher, by the way. If you are a regular listener, you'll know that my professional life is largely based around music and media. And that this show is my playground for my love of the outdoors, travel and that tiny little bit of the podcast universe where I might be able to share some positivity and reinforcement. I'm recording this on the same day I've had three teeth extracted. There's a health moral here that however much you can repair the damage you may do to your body, or should I say however great the body's ability to repair itself, teeth are a different matter. When they decay, they decay. Develop bad habits early in life in a country that doesn't put a high premium on good dentistry, as I did with an awful diet in my younger years in the UK, and those teeth will eventually need to go. It sucks, which is something I'm not allowed to do today, by the way, but it is what it is, and I'm so glad my own children have never had a fizzy drink of their own volition, I hasten to add, that they eat a minimum of sugary snacks and that they also pay regular visits to good dentists. So there's that. And then this Friday, two days from now, the day after I will hopefully have published this episode, marks the one-year anniversary of when I did a pretty good job of trying to kill myself. Not deliberately, but I did manage to engage in a pretty spectacular fall on Gore Mountain while skiing on February 19th, 2020. Two runs in on what was meant to be two whole days of playing in the mountains. I broke at least three ribs, which I kind of figured at the time But what I took to be just major winding and maybe the pain and pressure of those fractured ribs actually masked a punctured lung. By the time, over a week later, that I decided to visit a doctor, that lung had deflated to dangerously low levels. And straight after getting an x-ray, I was told to drive myself to Vassar Brothers Hospital about an hour away from where I live, like now. I found out afterwards that while you can function with a punctured lung, as I was, Should it fully deflate, you won't even get to the phone in time to dial an ambulance. So there's a moral to that anecdote as well, and it's one especially relevant to all my athletic friends who accept pain as the price of taking on an endeavour. Don't suck up an injury. Get it seen to. It may save your life. For those who don't know about punctured lungs, by the way, I'm going to skip the medical terms, and I'm going to tell you that they can be fixed by sticking a small tube between your ribs, 
by which I mean, you know, the doctor does that. I wouldn't recommend in stabbing yourself to, <laughs> to do so. And having said lung reinflated, unlike a bicycle tire with a puncture, the lung stays inflated. Two nights in the hospital and I was sent home and told I could resume normal activities. As I say, the body is amazing at self-repair. The teeth, to repeat, less so. Now, I mention all this not because I want you to have sympathy for me, absolutely the opposite. It's because I want to acknowledge how damn fortunate I am. These are the worst things that have happened to me in the last year, at least physically. Half a million Americans have lost their lives to COVID, 100,000 of my birthplace Brits, similar numbers in all manner of other Western countries. And here's me. The worst I can recount is a self-inflicted ski injury I didn't check out at the time and my decayed old teeth finally needing to come out. Now, I'm saying all this because in looking back over my podcast, I know I've made conscious efforts to feature a wide variety of guests from wide varieties of places. But when I look at the adventures we've discussed on this show, the common denominator has been this. We are all able-bodied. That's an enormous privilege to begin with. And if you want to challenge or question the word privilege, then let's at least allow that it's an expectation for those of us born in the West. And for those of us who do still have all our parts, it also reflects a degree of good fortune in our lives. And that's where James Rose comes in. I'm going to let James tell his own story. In the UK, it's reasonably well known. He's had some media coverage and deservedly so. But given that the UK only accounts for about a quarter of this show's listenership, his story will be unfamiliar to the majority of One Step Beyond listeners. And I trust you will find it as ultimately rewarding as I do, and as he appears to as well. James is from Yorkshire, the same county I was born in. But it's a large county, and the further north you go, the stronger the accents. I'm really, really trusting that you'll put in that little bit of effort to discern James's words. I can't offer subtitles on a podcast and it feels incredibly patronising to suggest it in the first place. Just, you know, do your best. So, do stick around at the end for a catch-up. And in the meantime, please join myself and the truly heroic James as we prepare to go. One step beyond! Hi, James Rose. Welcome to One Step Beyond. Uh, where am I speaking to you right now? Um, I'm in Middlesbrough, um, northeast of England. It's a place where like everyone knows each other, and it's not it's not that small where everyone knows each other's business. It's one of them places like if you go somewhere or someone mentions someone, then you'll probably know who they are. It's a friendly place as well. If some if something's happened to someone, I don't know if someone's passed away or something like that, for an example. And everyone will kind of like chip in and help for like funeral costs and stuff like that and do fundraising and stuff like that. So that's kind of like the town we're like. Great. I think people might know a bit more about Newcastle, which is further up, uh, up the road, I guess, further up, further up north. Is, is Middlesbrough, what's the kind of industry that people might know Middlesbrough for? Steel. Um, we, build, we built the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Well, all the steel came from uh, Teesside anyway. So that's one thing that comes out with Teesside. <laughs> 
I came across you because of social media related to Kilimanjaro. I guess once once I got off climbing Kilimanjaro, I was going to say last summer, but it's two summers ago now. You climbed it about a month after I did. Now, unlike myself, you got your your good self and sort of entry into the record books. Could you tell us why? I was supposed to have been the first double amputee, above knee amputee to climb it, completely unaided. When I did it unaided, it was basically from the bottom or the gear to the Marangu route, which you probably know yourself, um, all the way to the top. So, and that was just on my prosthetic legs. I kind of just want to want to pause for a second because it is such a such an achievement. You know, we want to be clear about it. Double double amputee above the legs. You climbed up Mount Kilimanjaro completely unaided. Nobody held your hand. Nobody pushed you in a wheelchair. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. No, no help at all. I mean. There was times when there was when the, when my when my friends were saying to me, James, one help, um, we'll carry you up and all this. I was like, no, get off, and I was literally like pushing him away, and that because that was my that was the all all aim of the challenge is to come just do it and completely like, try and push the boundaries. So you show people that anything can be done, really. It's not like you hide it from anybody whatsoever. So I'm going to ask you to explain to the audience here how you came to lose. Your legs and give us the backstory there please yeah so back in 2009 um i was serving with the second battalion in the yorkshire regiment um i was on my first tour of afghanistan and about about three or four weeks into my tour we'd been out on several patrols just normal routine patrols scanning the area and stuff like that and on obviously my last patrol um I was told to scan an area with a metal detector or Valum, as you call them in the military. And as I was as I was heading towards the the area to to um to scan, I noticed like the tree line, and next to the tree line there was it was like a big field that hadn't been cut, which that's a massive indicator. Um, if the if nothing's being chopped down, that means the farmers haven't been in there, and like they're, they're pretty much scared to go in there. So as I'm heading towards the tree line, scanning the area. Um, I turned around and I, as I lifted the branch up, I, set, I turned around and said to my mate behind me, he was giving me covering fire. I said, it's, it's pretty dodgy in here. And you just, it, you kind of like get a, get like a good feeling. I took one more step and that, when I took that step, that's when I, I stepped on and uh, triggered a pressure plate IED. IED is short for Improvised Explosive Device. And according to NATO, an IED is a type of unconventional explosive weapon that can take any form and be activated in a variety of ways. In this particular circumstance, just figure that James stepped right on a landmine. The, the initial blast it threw me into the air about five metres and when I landed on the floor, I wasn't. I couldn't feel any pain at all. There was no pain at all. It was just. I was just in pure shock. I knew. I knew something bad had happened, but I. Like, like I say, I didn't know what had happened. Um, and I lied there screaming, shouting. I, I just wanted help. I wanted people to come and see me and see, see what was going on. And after about a minute of shouting and screaming my head off, the shock went. And that's when all like the pain hit me. It just all hit me all at once. It was like a, it was like a blowtorch, like all over my legs and all over my body. But it's that's the only way I can really explain it. Um, at the, at the time, I didn't realise that I, I didn't have no legs. I just, I shouted, I've still got me, uh, me crown jewels, <laughs> as, as you were. And they said, yeah, the, 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 everything's still there intact. So, I, and I kind of like just fell back asleep. 
well, try to fall asleep, which at the time I didn't know if you fall asleep, then you're gonna, you're obviously gonna die and pass out. And I did, I did fall asleep once or twice, but obviously the lads they they kept me awake and they saved my life on the ground. And that's it. I remember that's all, all, all of it from getting getting hit right back until I woke up in in the airplane and. Obviously, wow. yeah. Wow. Uh, you said there's so much to unpack there. There's, uh, that was 2009. You climbed Kilimanjaro in 2019. And I know we're going to have a lot to talk about, about the journey you took. You said this was your f your first tour of Afghanistan. I mean, how long had you been in the army? How long had you even been out there? God, I wasn't I wasn't in the army long, actually. Yes, I, I joined the army in the end of 2007. Um, so I was I was literally in the army about a year and a half. What kind of attracted you to go to to join the army in the first place? Um, the main the main thing was I just wanted I wanted to kind of like change my life around, and because my my older brother, well, Silver, he was only two years older. He he was already in the army, and he was he was he was he'd been in the army for five years, and I always remember him like coming home on leave on the weekend, and I'm sat at home with like. No, no outlook, no career or like outlook path or anything like that. That was that was probably the main reason actually, just of seeing that, and I really wanted to just try and help myself, and because I see he was like the same person as me, but when he like joined the military, you could see the change in him, and I wanted I wanted some of that. Were you always aware of the risks of potentially being sent to an Afghanistan or Iraq, and and, uh, and you know having that kind of incident happen to you or worse? It's at first I wasn't really. I just thought I want to join the army. Then, when when I did join the army, there was loads of talk about Afghanistan and Iraq and all this. And but I kind of I kind of just shrugged it off. I think I was like naive and just thought it's it's not going to happen to me or anything like that. And it's quite it's quite strange as well because I remember I wasn't I wasn't supposed to go. I went and seen a sergeant major and I said, "Can I go to Afghanistan?" He went, "Are you sure?" I went, "Yeah, that's 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 what I've joined the army for. Really, I wanna I wanna get." I'm going to get amongst it and yeah. So did you know once you got there, what you were, what you were dealing with? I mean, was it clear what you were dealing with? Because, you know, unfortunately in some of these scenarios, it just seems that it's a very hard, very difficult situation to try and figure out where, you know, exactly what you're doing there, who the enemy, it's not a conventional kind of theater of war. No, as we no, might it's, it's, it's quite a, it's quite a strange one. Like when I remember as soon as we, as soon as we um, the plane landed in Kandahar, I remember the back coming down off the plane. And as soon as that back came down, I just I thought to myself, "What the hell am I doing here?" You just I went from like a, a twenty-two-year-old like young young man to like I don't know. I must have aged about five or ten years straight away. In terms of knowing what you're dealing with over there, it's quite a it's quite a tricky one that because. You see, one day you're talking to the farmers, the locals, and stuff like that. The next day, they're like your US enemy. They don't annoy you and stuff. So you kind of get an you kind of get a feeling who your who your friends are. So that's what you kind of you kind of um, you have to you have to make friends over there with them. You have to be you have to be nice to them. Were you unfortunate enough to also lose any friends out there, or at least did? Um, I've 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 lost friends, but not like close friends from my battalion it's like friends from training who i knew from training we've lost them um there was a couple of lads on the same tour as me who got hit as well who've lost legs and other, other body parts which yeah not very nice yeah the, the the 10 years in between 
But tell me about the journey, because I, I, I gather it was not as instant as uh, just sort of, you know, waking up back in Britain and going, oh, I think I'm going to climb Kilimanjaro. You know, it's it's not that easy, is it, right? Oh, no, it's def- definitely, definitely not that easy. I remember I was in, after the initial in, after the initial injury, I was in hospital six, six and a half weeks, and I was discharged and sent home. So when I was sent home, that's when the problem started happening and stuff. I started realizing like how, how bad it was. And I used to see my friends walking past and they'd come and knock on the door. And I used to say to my, my partner at the time, which is now my wife, I used to say to her, go and answer the door and tell her I'm not in, I don't want to see anyone. So straight away I was in that state of like depression and all this kind of stuff. And I was breaking down crying. Um, I just didn't see, I just didn't see a way out of anything. I just, I just thought this is my life now, no legs. I can't, I'm sat in a wheelchair. The, the weather was grim as well. It was like it was like this time of the year when I came back. Um, I, kept, and I remember this all the time as well, trying to get into my mum's house, like falling out of the wheelchair and stuff. And that's what was really getting me down as well. The first step, if we can dare use that word, for James to set off on his path towards some kind of physical recovery was to attend a place called Headley Court the UK's leading rehabilitation centre for injured soldiers. It involved going to the opposite end of England for four weeks at a time. And immediately, it put James in a more positive frame of mind. And I remember turning up there on the first day, and it was, when I turned up, there was people with, like, no arms at all, no legs, and they were in wheelchairs, and they were all, like, having a laugh, like, in the smoking shelter and stuff, and the people were helping each other smoke, and that's what it was like. And I got there, and I was like... Jesus Christ, is this real this? And it just made me, it just changed my mindset straight away, straight from there. I just thought, well, if they've got no arms, I've got no legs. I mean, I'd, I'd rather have no legs than no arms. I'd rather keep my arms. So I, that's the kind of outlook I had. Initially, Headley Court yielded positive results. Within three or four weeks or something, I was standing back up again on prosthetic legs, which that was a massive, like a massive buzz for me, because I didn't think I'd, I'd be getting there, but... As fast as I was standing back up again, I was straight back in the hospital again about two weeks later with more surgeries. And so that's that's kind of the journey. It was just like up, down, up, down, up, down, and right up until like 2014. I remember like 2011 and 12, them years, when I look back now, were like really difficult for me, like like with drinking and all that kind of stuff. And I just went off the rails quite a bit. So We haven't you mentioned the word PTSD. Is there a lot of PTSD yeah. involved here as well, James? Yes, well, I was, when I look back now, I was, yeah, there was lots of it. There was, I was fully depressed, fully with PTSD, but I didn't, I didn't realise, I didn't know the signs. I shook them off and I was even seeing like a, um, oh, what's the word? Like a head doc, I was seeing a head doctor there and he was examining me every week and I didn't want to see him. I just thought, I said to him, there's nothing wrong with me. I don't want to see anyone, I'm fine. I kept on doing stuff that I was doing before I got injured, like I was going out with my friends, I was going out and going for a pint and stuff like that. So I thought myself, I'm fine here. And yeah, 2011-12, that's when I kind of got out of control, like drinking and doing all sorts of other stuff, drugs and stuff like that. And I didn't realise at the time, like my weight as well, I went to about 18 stone in weight. At 14 pounds to a stone, James was clocking in at a massive 252 pounds. As for why there are 14 pounds in a stone, I have spent a lifetime kind of wondering that. And thanks to the powers and wonder of the internet, 
I can now confirm that it's because back in 1389, a royal statute in the UK fixed the stone of wool at £14. That doesn't help explain why there are 16 ounces to a pound, nor for that matter why an American pint is 16 ounces, but the British pint is 20 ounces. What I will say is that when a Brit tells you he had four pints at the pub last night, that's five American pints. I remember I was a 48 waist at one point, and I was, I was huge, and it wasn't even because of the tablets either, because I remember just taking myself off the tablets. As far as like all the medication I was on, I thought I'm going to take myself off them and try and sort myself out, and... But it was just the drink and the eating and just, just no motivation with me whatsoever. Um, but if if I didn't stop what I was doing, then I'd probably be dead. And if it wasn't for my wife as well, she's been my rock through all this. Yeah, she seems to be incredible. I think there's a massive shout out there because you're saying she was your partner when you came home. Mm. And... Uh, you know, we all need we all need someone in our lives, right? And it sounds yeah. like you got someone who's stuck by you, and uh, and and you said you're married now, and 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 I think she got you to the next step as well, didn't she? Because if you're in this sort of drink, drink drugs, eating cycle over two hundred pounds, yeah, you know, in a, in a wheelchair, how how did uh, how did you get out of that 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 cycle? Well, she was um, she was rowing down at the local rowing club, um, Tees Rowing Club in Stockton. And she used to say to me every time, come down and give it a go, come give it a go. And I was like, no, no, I don't want to, I don't want to. And I remember once I went down and tried it. And I can't, I enjoyed it a little tiny bit. I thought, oh, yeah, it's all, it's all right, it's all right. Shrugged it off, as you do. And I went the next week and I just kept on going back and back and back. And that's, that's where my life changed for me, basically, from getting into something like sport like that. And it was just down to my wife who told me to go down there and... It just opened up a lot of my doors. Like within within like two years of me rowing, now I was on the I was on the, the GB development squad, in the, with with the aim of going to the Olympics and stuff. So it completely changed my life. Well, in a, in a two year process, were you af- uh, were you athletic as a kid? I mean, obviously you joined the army; you had to be fit to do that. But were yeah. you were you always like like athletic? Uh, yeah, I was always I was always running. <laughs> Sounds like a bit like Forrest Gump, but. I mean, if I was going to the shop for my mum or something, I'd be running to the shop and I'd run back. And I was that kind of person. I was always playing football and I was just always like, yeah, walking about and just running about and being active and stuff, yeah. But for four or five years after, um, after you know, let's call it what it is, having your legs blown off, for four or five years, you, you, you just couldn't, you couldn't face that by the sound of it until you tried out the rowing. You couldn't get back into that frame of mind? No, my, my life there was... Like I said, it was just drinking and partying. Well, yeah, going out and eating and just doing absolutely nothing with my life. And I didn't realise I was doing nothing. I thought it was, I thought it was doing all right. And until you find something that, that changes your life and you realise when you look back, you think, what, what the hell was I doing then? And yeah, if it wasn't for that, if it wasn't for, the, if it wasn't for my wife getting me in the road, then I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be here now. When James joined the uh, rowing club there in Stockton, he found three or four other paras to row alongside. A para here is not shorthand for parachutists, like a para regiment you might have in the army, but rather refer to people who might uh, appear in the Paralympics, a subject to which we will return in a moment. It's also well worth pointing out that rowing is one of the great all-body workouts. And even if you don't have the lower part of your body, it's still one of the toughest things you can engage in. And maybe it was that aspect that attracted somebody naturally athletic like James. 
it's the gruesomeness of it. It's like you get on the rowing machine and within like five minutes you want to go jump straight back off because it the pain and the constant like the hurt I get in my legs and my arms and it's tiring as well. So that's that's what I like. I like pushing myself. James did not end up going to the Olympics with the GB rowing squad. He had a couple of incidents that forestalled that. One of them was out on the tees at the Stockton Rowing Club where his boat capsized. And being that he was strapped in by nature of his uh, body, he had a panic attack, managed to right himself, but that panic attack resurfaced as PTSD when he did a time trial down in the south of England in very, very bad conditions. So bad, in fact, that the organisers said that rowers did not need to row that day, except that James, demonstrating his soldier's mentality, insisted on rowing anyway. He had a torrid time out there, delivered a terrible time out there, and gave up the rowing. He did not, however, give up the concept of sport. Well, after that, there was a there was an opportunity to do like a, a charity bike ride on a. I don't know if you've seen it on the kind of hand cycles where you use your use your hands like a freewheeler type thing. And that was to do a, a hundred mile bike ride. And I thought to myself, right, I want to do something else. So this came along, and I thought, right, I'll try it, see if I like it. And I remember. I was on one of my training sessions and I was by myself. This was like a week before the actual ride itself. And my plan was that day to do like 20, 30K training. I managed 10 before I got run over on my bike. <laughs> so it's it's kind of like, it's kind of like I've got no luck, but I don't know. It's like I got run over there and I thought to myself, right, I'm still going to do the ride. I'm gonna still going to do the, the ride regardless, even though I had, I had a pot on my arm. I had all road rash all over me and my bike, what I was on was like, it was like a tank. It was heavy compared to all the other people's like, they're like professional racers and stuff. But I, f- I finished the race anyway, I finished it and about seven hours it took me. And that's the first, and la- that was the last time I got on the bike. I didn't enjoy that, but I tried that. Given what he rightly admits to as a certain degree of bad luck, and even given the degree of fortitude he's already displayed, you could well forgive James for saying that's it. I'm going to go back to who I was. Maybe he would have gone back to the drinking and drugging. But that no longer was who James was. He just had to find who he needed to become. So 2018, the Invictus Games came along and I applied applied for that. So when you apply for it, you have to attend so many camps. So there's about seven camps before you get like an email or you get told you've been selected. When I've got this email... It said, "Congratulations, you've been um, you've been selected to be part of Team UK," and it, it didn't really sink in. I did. I looked at it and I thought, "This is it's not true. This is not true." And I've, I must have read it about thirty times. So I admit, while I had a sense of what the Invictus Games were or are, I knew that they weren't or aren't the Paralympics. So I looked them up. According to the foundation's website, they came about after Prince Harry, aka the Duke of Sussex saw the Warrior Games in action in the USA in 2013 and realised firsthand how the power of sport, I'm quoting here, can help physically, psychologically and socially those suffering from injuries and illness. The Games are specifically for injured servicemen and women from a multitude of countries and they involve nine particular sports. The Games took place in Sydney in 2018, which gave James the chance to see the uh, Middlesbrough steel used on the Harbour Bridge up close and personal. His wife and his mother both got to attend, and James came home with medals. Yeah, we got we got a silver medal in sitting volleyball, 
in the bronze medal in wheelchair basketball and the Yanks they knocked us out in basketball which is understandable that's a, that's a home spot isn't it really but yeah. and yet for all that truly momentous achievement it's a long way from doing seated volleyball and wheelchair basketball to deciding that you can climb Mount Kilimanjaro unaided as a double above the knee amputee I was watching someone on telly with, it's called um, Extreme Everest, with, and it was Ant Middleton. He was in the SBS Special Board Service. And anyway, he was, he, was on, he was on telly, he was on Channel 4, and he was climbing Mount Everest. And I've always, I've always been obsessed with mountains, and Mount Everest especially. And I'm watching it, and then I, I, I put something on Facebook on my status saying, I'd love to climb Mount Everest one day, ha, 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 or, or something on the lines of that. And one of my one of the, my teammates from the Invictus Games in volleyball, he he seen my post, and he rang me up the next day, and he said to me, "I seen your post last night about Mount Everest." I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And he went, "Well, what about if you climb Kilimanjaro instead?" So I'm like, "All right, yeah, okay, whatever." You kind of like just shrug it off. Did you think, "How oh, the hell am I going to do that?" And I shrugged it off for about oh, two weeks, three weeks. But he was he was texting me every day saying. I've got this in place, I've planned this, I've planned that. And I just thought, I thought it was one big joke. And it was only till about two or three months into all this talking and stuff like this, he said to me, right, I need to know now if you're serious about doing it. And that's, my heart kind of sank because I've been going along with him for all this time. And, and for him to say that, I thought to myself, well, I can't back down now. So it was just kind of like, I'm going to have to say yeah. So that was it. I said, yeah, let's do it. And again, it probably speaks to James' character that he insisted on no special treatment and no special crew either. If I'm being honest, we, we winged it, and that that was my that that was it. We winged it all the way, but I kind of like I've, I've probably like fell in love with like climbing mountains and stuff now. So for some of us, there's just an attraction about a summit, isn't it? You just look at it and go, "I'd love to get up that." Yeah, yeah. It's for me. It's when I'm like halfway up around the mountain, and I'm like I'm sitting, I'm muttering away at myself, thinking, "What the hell am I doing here?" It's, I'm probably like in pain and I'm tired, it's hurting me, but it's it's a feeling you get when you're at the top and it's a feeling you get when you're, when you're back down at the car or wherever you're going to, it's like, what have I just achieved? There's something amazing. Again, it's it's kind of that what, what spurs me on and, and not to mention like the views and all the stuff like that and like the benefits of us, mental health and stuff like that. It's, it's, I just love it, it's everything about it. I was figuring when I was uh, researching to, to actually talk to you now, I was figuring, well, you must have taken way more days than we did because you're obviously not going as fast as, as, as people who still have their legs. Uh, mm. But you did it in the same number of days as us. It was five days, yeah, five days. Five days going up. Then it must have been about a day coming back down, getting all the way down back to the... Did you yeah. do the Morango route, did you? Yeah, we did do the yeah. Morango route. And I have a feeling it was, uh, it gets a bit weird because you can't figure out that last day because you kind of go up and down. I think we were one night, then two nights at the same place with the acclimatization day, then the one night at the Kibo hut. So yeah, we were also yeah. five. That's so right. you, you did it in the same days, which is just utterly phenomenal. But from what I've seen, I, I mean, you were out there so much longer every day. We might have been five or six hours of hiking. It looks to me oh. like you were dub doubling that every single day. Is that correct? Well, yeah, the, the first day was nine hours. The second day was um, 14 hours. The, the third day, that's the, I think the third day is when you're, 
you go up a little bit and you come back down, it'll acclimatize. Yeah, you go up to Zebra Rock and back down. Yeah. That's what a lot of people do, right? Yeah. Yeah, but I'm, I'm never doing that. I, I chose to just to, to rest because my legs were in absolute bits and with blisters and I was cut, cut all over and stuff. So I, I chose to rest. Then the, the the fourth day, that's going to Kibu Cut, isn't it? Yeah. We were going there and that was that was about 12, 13 hours. But as, as you know, that just it's it's quite flat, isn't it? And it's you're just looking at this path in front and you're like, oh my God. It's never ending, but for some reason, I didn't feel as tired on that day. I kind of like just kept my head down and I was just plodding along. It's only until I, it's only until I could see like the camp, which we about 200 meters away. That's when I hit the wall all the time. I'm like, it's there. I just want to get there, but I can't. And I'm trying to go faster and I'm tying myself out even faster. And that's, that's, that's a hard path for me mentally when I can see the camp, but I can't get there as quick. I've seen footage of you, and you use um, you use a different set of, of prosthetic legs for some of this climbing, don't you? Can you describe that for people? Yeah, they're basically they're called stubbies. So you've got like your prost- you've got like your, um, your socket which goes on the top of your leg, your thigh, which is made of carbon fiber. Then you have basically like a little foot, what's on the end. So when I'm stood up, I'm about four foot, and when I'm stood up, I'm on these little stubbies, and. The reason I chose them is because when it when it starts like going uphill a bit or starts getting a bit steep, you can you can crawl and you can use all your legs and it just makes life a whole lot easier. You're kind of back on all fours, really, aren't you? It's almost yeah. like like how we were before we came out, you know, came came that, up off that, the trees, etc. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. You, you you you're on all fours and people were looking at me to look at. You must think his back's going to be breaking there, but it's, you kind of get used to it. And it's just one of those things you get used, you get used to you like being lent over like that and, and crawling. But as you know, yourself on the last day, it's, it's constantly uphill. There wasn't one part of that where I was, where I was stood up normally walking on my crutches. I was, I was just like on my hands and I was crawling a bit. You would, you did your training in North Yorkshire and this was before you went and you actually are quoted as saying, I can't imagine it being much steeper than this. And <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm thinking the side of that volcano because you know your first three, four, your first four days are just are just making your way to the foot of the volcano, and then the volcano is yeah. a, a five thousand foot climb, I think it is. It's thirty three hundred feet actually, which is still one thousand meters at very very high altitude. There is no five thousand foot climb in the UK, so um... <laughs> no, no, I don't even know why you said that. Actually, it's kind of yeah. When I look back, I think it's quite silly, but yeah, it's. The, the bottom of Kilimanjaro, it's constantly just steep, isn't it? It's just, it's constantly like that where over here, it's, you get like a little steep bit, then it'll go flat and steep. But the the, the summit there, Kilimanjaro is somewhere else. And I don't know how we got up here, to be honest. It was, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, that was. It was it was the hardest thing I've, I've done. And I know altitude definitely played into that how many hours were you out there we, we generally set off about midnight one in the morning how many hours yeah. were you out there we got to we got to kibu hut at oh my aim was i said to myself i want to get to camp before it's dark and it just started turning dark so i think it was about eight o'clock but i remember by the time we sat down on our beds and we've we've set, we've sorted all our kit out and stuff it must have been about half 10 11 o'clock and we got woke up at one o'clock and we set off about, I think it was two o'clock in the morning. And what time did you actually make it to the uh, flag to Uhuru Peak? Oh, it was 14 hours later. 40, 14 hours later was absolutely horrendous. <laughs> 
to be out there all day as well as all night one reason to climb up the mountain overnight is because it's cool um you can't you can't see the summit which kind of helps um the idea of being at it all day long as well just i i I honestly can't fathom that i mean my 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 admiration for you is is utterly without reserve did you have points where you wanted to give up yes i I had two two points where I wanted to give up. I remember we were crawling up there, and I I kept I, I kept saying to myself seven hours or eight hours, and we'll be up. Um, seven hours had passed, and we still hadn't got the top. We were probably halfway. I can't I can't remember if where this point is. You might remember there's like a there's like a cave where you go up, and there's like a like a sheltered bit. He's talking about Handsmayer Cave which is only halfway up the volcano, still well over 2,000 feet from the summit itself. But we got there and I sat down and thought, oh God, we just sit here all day now. <laughs> but I knew we had to get up and it was about three or four hours towards the end. I was taking one step back, one step forward and I was sliding back down. I was going up, down, up, down because the sand is like, it's quite deep, isn't it? Um, and I remember going zigzagging across and I, I, could see, I could see where we were going. I was like, this is going to take ages and I hit, that's when I hit the wall and I sat down for a good 10-15 minutes and I sat there like sulking saying I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't tell myself I can't do it and I remember my friend coming up to me and he, he actually said to me, it's okay we can go back down if you want to go back down and that's probably not the right words to say when you're out a mountain and you, you, you feel like you've just giving up, you want someone to give you a bit of encouragement but he, he, that's what he said to me and as soon as he said that, I went, no, let's go. And I stood up. I took about five more steps and I completely like lost it. Scream, shout, swearing and all sorts and sat back down and went, that's it. Blah, blah, screaming. I can't do it. And I sat there about another 10 minutes and I was sitting there for it. I was just sitting there pondering away and I said to myself, if I don't get up this, if I don't, if I don't make it there, then I'm going to be in the hole I was when I first got injured. I'm going to be like that. And I kind of got up. And that was it. I didn't stop anymore. I just got up and crawled all the way to the top. Yeah, I did have altitude sickness. My head, my head felt like it was in a vice at times. Um, I was going dizzy, and I had. I remember I had probably like bad heartburn as well because I didn't take my heartburn tablet. <laughs> it's my own fault. I mean, you're right about your family, or certainly yourself, being made of being made of strong stuff. And um, how did you feel when you actually got got to the peak there? To Uhuru? It, I started crying. <laughs> I just like, I, I, I got to the top and I was, like I started crying, but then I was like knackered at the same time and thinking to myself, I'm going to have to get back down. But luckily enough, I got help going back down. So that, that for me was absolutely, I don't think I would have made it back down in the amount of like pain I was actually in, but if push came to shove, then I would have had to go back down on my own. But I got help most of the way back down, which... Which was which is all right. My aim was to get to the top completely unaided, which I achieved. So I'm I'm very happy with that. Yeah, it's 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 truly phenomenal. I'm I'm aware that when we sort of compare um, these these stories, they 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 sound so painful that other people might say that that's the last thing I want to do with in, <laughs> on my bucket list. But sell it to people because I get it. Obviously, sell it to people about why why they should be willing to embrace the sort of pain that you've been willing to embrace to take something on. What's the payoff? Um, the payoff for me personally is the massive sense of achievement um, you get just off standing on top of a mountain if that's what you want to do or if you push yourself so hard then it just means you. for me you, you become like a stronger person um, 
the amount the amount of stuff that I've been through and I've like pushed through it. It's from the rowing, from the the handbiking to the Invictus Games to the mountain climbing. It's all made me like like a stronger person. And like I'm already like thinking now, like I'm. I don't know if this is too ambitious, but I've got like Mount Everest there. I just want to. I want to climb it. I know it's it, it'll be absolutely rock hard. And it's it's hard for like seasoned mountaineers, but that's that's kind of like the the outlook I have. Like I want to like try and push the boundaries as far as I can and just help as many people along the way if I can. You know so. Well, talk, talking of helping people, am I right that you, uh, it's a very British thing to do as well. Did you do fundraising when you went up Kilimanjaro? Yeah, we did fundraising. So it was just for, it was for two military charities, the British Legion and Help for Heroes. So we raised, I think it was 24 grand within about six months we raised. Ah, oh, fantastic. So, so yeah. you were able to do that. You were able to do that as well. You're very big about the mental health side of this. And, and as you should be for somebody who went through PTSD, this is not yeah. just about becoming physically stronger, is it? It's, mm. about, it's about being happy, having a positive outlook on life. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I talk a lot about the mental health side because I know what I was going through and I know how hard it can be for people. And, you know, it was hard for me, but it's only till only when I look back, I know how hard it was. The reason why like I talk about a lot is I'm, I know like if if you get into something you like like rowing like I did and it's gonna completely change your life you just need to be you just need to be willing to take a step or go and try and do something just try something if you don't like it try something else until you until you've actually found something that you really really love enjoy doing where for me it's for me now it's like climbing mountains even though it's kind of like a love hate relationship like I enjoy doing it and. I don't enjoy doing it. I don't enjoy the pain. I do enjoy the pain, you know, it's kind of like that. But yeah, that's, that's why I talk about it a lot. I mean, because a few of my friends now back on they've taken their life through mental health and stuff. And how they've taken their life is through what I was going through before with like drinking drugs and all that kind of stuff. And that's all they were doing. They were just drinking every day and stuff. And it's not nice to see because I've, I've actually been there and done that. So. And I think part of the mental health aspect of it, it's hard sometimes to, to sell this to people if they're in a bad way, but the, 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 the physical satisfaction you get, the sort of the, the endorphins, you know, that, that you get oh, yeah. from, from doing that, the, the, the payoff is not just physical because you start feeling better about yourself and you start realizing what we're capable of. And as humans that we just don't really actually push ourselves that much, do we on a daily basis? Yeah, it's you definitely definitely get a, a sense of pride about yourself again. You can't like the confidence. That's that's a big thing. It's like when you're overweight and you you you're very heavy and you're you're unfit. You feel you feel lousy, don't you? Anyway, like even if you like eat like a stodgy meal or if I eat a pizza or something, then I'll feel lousy about myself. So just like just like achieving something like that, or even eating healthy, then you, it just gives you that sense of I don't know. You just feel that you. You're in the right headspace all the time. Yeah. When you came back from Killy, did you set yourself um, other similar goals? And and if you did, to what extent did the pandemic put uh, put a stop on them? Yeah, I've, I've set another goal, which is to climb another mountain. It's not not as big as Kilimanjaro. It's uh, Mount Tubkal in North Africa. Which it's uh, I think that's the highest mountain in North Africa in the Atlas Mountains. Um, the aim was to do that in June this year, but I, I can't see that going ahead due to the pandemic so but in the meantime like before that we've we've done other mountains in the lake district uh mount snowden um oh, lord the old man of coniston which it's all they're all quite big mountains and they all take me like 12 12 hours to do 13 hours to do so I, 
it, again, it's it's pushing myself again. British peaks are extremely exposed, aren't they? And they and you don't oh. have a clearly marked trail up top for a lot of them. You you you're navigating. You know, they're they're a whole different ball game. Just because they aren't as high as as you know American mountains doesn't mean they're not tough work. Yeah, the, the Mount Snowden. That's that's the highest. That's that is thirteen hundred meters. I think that is something like that. Twelve hundred meters. Just for an example, when we got to the top of that, at the bottom of it, it was three degrees, nice and sunny weather. Um, when we got to the top, it was fifty mile an hour winds, and it was um, it was like it wasn't snow; it was like ice, like floating around, like hitting you in the side of the face and stuff like that. And so, but they are they are pretty they are pretty grim. But you've had a certain amount of, Brit- of British media coverage. Has, is mm. is is that sort of like led to anything? Because it seems to me that you you are and should be something of a role model for people who might go through something similar, whether or not it's in the armed forces. But having that kind of life defining accident and then being able to actually strive on from there, despite all the challenges, the physical and mental challenges that would present. Yeah, I kind of I kind of do like talks and stuff like this, um, that kind of stuff, but. My, I just like to try and help, like help people. I mean, I get, I get messages. I get, I get a message the other day actually from someone in Texas, and he's, he's, he's messaged me saying that I've inspired him to go and try and climb Kilimanjaro himself, and he, he's, he's an amputee as well. That really gives me like a kick, you know. It's kind of like if I'm, if I can help one person with like my positivity or if I've done something, then like climb a mountain and showing people that they can do it as well, you know. So. Yeah, it's kind of kind of gives me like a little a little buzz out of it if I can help someone. Uh, anything else in the works? You play? You got like a life story you're planning to tell, or anything like that? Oh yeah, yes. Um, I'm in the middle of writing my my first book. It's going quite good actually. I've just well, this is the third time. Look, I've had my first writer who was helping me write it. He kind of backed out. He backed out. My second writer, he wasn't going fat, as fast as I wanted him to with me. So I've found another another guy now and he's he's actually written his own book so he knows what it's all about and he's actually just sent me a contract tonight so I'm going to read through that and sign it all so it's it's all pretty legit and we're hoping for about another four months and it'll be out there so all be unwell. If you could boil all your advice down to like like one thing that you could say that that you've learned from your experiences that would that, that would send a message of positivity what would it what would it come down to really? Um, my, my main one would be um, set goals. Set goals. Um, you don't have to achieve them. If you don't achieve them, set another one. Find something that you're passionate about, which you, like for me is climbing mountains, or, which that takes up most of my time now, which is finding new mountains to climb and stuff. So if you can find something that you really enjoy, then that's going to help you along the way and set some goals. But overall as well, try and be happy in life. I'm going to look up, but do you know if anybody, if a double amputee has ever climbed Everest? No. Well, <laughs> yeah. you've, got many, you've got many years ahead of you to take that one on. So maybe, maybe oh, it'll yes. be in the record books for that one as well. So. That w- yeah, that would be good. <laughs> the best place to visit James online is at Instagram. You'll find him at James7Rosie with a Y on the end of Rose. And if you go back to February 3rd and January 11th, you'll see video of him climbing the volcano summit of Mount Kilimanjaro on those stubbies he described. It is hard without looking at that video to imagine the amount of work and effort and indeed pain that James must have gone through to be able to pull off that climb. 
His Instagram site is actually great. The quality of photos is generally really, really good. It shows him on all kinds of other peaks, shows him in training, shows him perfectly proud of his body, especially as it is now, and especially in comparison to where it was when he weighed 18 stone. You'll see a few before and after pictures as well. And in the show notes for this episode, I'll post a few links to stories about him in the British media. He's had a fair few share of interviews. If you don't know what the show notes are, those are the notes that accompany this show on your phone or your web page or hopefully however else you're listening to this, except, of course, on the radio, in which case I do encourage you to visit our own social media. That's coming up at the end of the show. And if you'd like to hear the mini documentary about our own group climb up Mount Kilimanjaro just a month before James in the summer of 2019, well, that's the first four episodes of One Step Beyond. I'm going to close out this show by following up a little on the last couple of shows. There was a very strong, by which I do mean positive, reaction to the Black Travel Matters podcast, episode 20, on which I interviewed teacher and tour operator Ashley Scott, along with three of the female students of colour from the grand state of Georgia that he has taken on international adventures. I shared a link about this show on an otherwise excellent new Facebook travel page called Authentic Travellers, and was immediately challenged by someone insisting I keep politics out of travel. I'm pleased to say that others quickly chimed in to support the post and the need to highlight the racial and social inequities that exist in travel opportunities, just as they do elsewhere in society. So I guess the arc of justice is kind of continuing to swing in the right direction. I had hoped at the time of putting out that episode that I'd be following it up soon with an interview I conducted a couple of months back with Ruben Fies, a black Frenchman who operates a general travel website called Been Around the Globe and recently self-published a very good book entitled Travelling While Black, which, while it could have done with some editing, as can most self-published books, raised a lot of important issues that face the black traveller, more so in some countries than others, and not all of which as Rubens is at pains to point out, involve racism as much as a combination of curiosity and sometimes well-intentioned ignorance, or, to put it more politely, a lack of education. The book dives into such issues as the human trafficking of female prostitutes from Nigeria and how that impacts on the perception of other black, African or African-descended female travellers around the world, and he also highlights racism in India. It's part of my own white privilege that I did not experience that racism when I spent two and a half months in India in 2016. But it is all too evidently true that India does operate by its own colour-coded caste system. Something that, now that I'm watching a lot of Bollywood movies for fun, I really can't ignore. Unfortunately, I couldn't turn the interview with Ruben into a full episode, but I'd really like to thank him for taking part in the interview, and I encourage you to visit his site and read his book. So, there was also a great reaction to episode 21, a very different one, called A Winter Day's Hike, about my pleasant day's hike, covering a well-trodden path up our local Halcott Mountain in the snow. It's interesting that these shorter, more personal episodes I occasionally put out have generated some of the most enthusiastic responses in terms of people reaching out to me, and yet to the extent that such figures are reliable. 
are far from the most popular episodes in terms of overall listenership. I'm not sure what lessons to learn from this apparent contradiction, but as of this past week, One Step Beyond has been officially downloaded in 50 different nations, so I have to presume we're doing something right. On episode 21, I mentioned another Facebook group page, Catskill Trail Conditions, as a great place to get your info before setting off on a hike here, and indeed to post your report and pictures afterwards. About 12 hours after I posted that episode, the group's founder, Tim Luby, announced the unveiling of his app, currently Apple-only, I'm afraid. It's called Hike Intel, and it aims to crowdsource information about hikes to provide for safe and enjoyable adventures globally, without the kind of negative commentary that is sadly so often a feature of Facebook. On that subject, I was wary of showing my own face on that group page for climbing Halcott without snowshoes, despite the fact that as a bushwhack there's really no requirement to do so. But then, instead, I decided to double down. On Valentine's Day, I took my girlfriend on a first winter hike, that's her first winter hike, not mine, up Overlook Mountain, the very popular and also very steep climb just above the famed village of Woodstock. The trail is more like a road, which makes it relatively easy, even for non-experienced hikers. It passes through the ruins of the Overlook Mountain House, which makes it entertaining, especially for little kids. And it finishes with a fire tower on top, which allows for spectacular views for those brave enough to climb the steps. And those views are spectacular even when there is low cloud cover on a snowy day, such as Valentine's Day. My pictures may have looked like they were taken in black and white, but that only made them all the more haunting as far as I was concerned. Snowshoes were absolutely not needed on Overlook, and I encourage anyone in this area who wants to explore winter hiking in the Catskills that this Overlook would be a great first adventure. What made our own climb even more rewarding was the sight of skiers coming down off the top of the mountain along the side of the trench formed by the regular hikers. Given that Overlook fails to flatten out, It's the kind of fall line that rewards the uphill climb with skis either on your back or skinned up on your feet. In fact, just as we reached the bottom, we came across a couple of snowboarders, one of whom was carrying his board on his back, the other of whom was climbing uphill on a split board, which is basically what it sounds like, a snowboard that splits in two to facilitate the uphill climb. In winter sports parlance, this is called earning your turns. I posted a picture of Casey and Steve, because that's their names, posing with their equipment, and they showed up on the Catskill Trails Conditions page within hours, surprised to see themselves there, but clearly delighted to do so in assuring me and the rest of the viewers that the ride back down the hill had been well worth their uphill effort. No promises, but if I can get it together, I'll put out an episode about backcountry skiing and riding while it is still winter. It's something I have no real experience of myself, though ironically I do have the skis for it. Time, perhaps, for me to further step outside my comfort zone. Besides, what's the worst that can happen? Well, as someone who's already experienced a badly broken shoulder, some concussion, scar tissue, and that aforementioned punctured lung and broken ribs, all from downhill skiing on official trails, I probably should not tempt fate. While we are on the subject of hiking, a shout out, and not for the first time, to Travel Tales Beyond the Brochure, which recently, 
All right, it was 12 weeks ago, but it's recent for me because I only just listened to it. An episode on Kinder Scout, a peak in England's aptly named Peak District, famous for a mass trespass back in 1932 that kick-started a right-to-roam movement that was eventually enshrined in legislation in the year 2000. As I mentioned to James on this episode, I've done very little exploration of Britain's wonderfully dangerous outdoors, but a decade or more back, I added an overnight day to a drive from Manchester to Yorkshire, booked into the Snake Inn Pass, more or less at the foot of Kinder Peak, and planned a day taking in the Kinder Scout loop of peaks. My plan was to run. Unfortunately, there was a misty rain looming all day, and I showed some maturity by erring on the side of caution. Unlike the Catskill, those peaks are very exposed, the trails are loosely marked, if at all, and I knew that if I could not keep the main road, the A57, within sight, there was every likelihood of losing my inner compass entirely and getting trapped up there. I had a fun 17 miles on the hills all the same, the last few of which entailed climbing all the way back up again from where I started just to round off the hard day's work. As I was the only overnight guest at the inn that night, and as they had cooked up a big vegan stew at my request, I was encouraged to have seconds, and then thirds, as I was, after all, the only person there for dinner. That meant I also had almost no distance to crawl afterwards into my bed. It snowed lightly that night, there was blue sky in the morning, and it would have been the perfect day to do the running I'd planned the previous one. But that is the reality of planned travel. You take what the weather calendar gives you. That calendar has given us lots of snow and cold weather in the northeast of the USA this winter. And at the time of recording, as I think you're probably aware, right across the whole country. Meantime, those who are into hiking the local mountains say it's the best winter here in years and years. Judging by the number of backcountry tracks that we're seeing alongside the hikers, you can figure the skiers and riders are not complaining either. I'm planning another trip to Gore with my older snowboarding son next week. And if you're wondering, on our first trip of this winter to that mountain, we revisited the scene of my fateful, though thankfully not fatal, fall from last February. The mistake I made, cutting across two interlocking trails and hitting a hidden ditch in between by error, did not appear as dumb as it felt at the time, at least not to my son, who wasn't with me last year. And in fact, it did look like a snowboarder or two had tried much the same thing the same day we were there. Sometimes it's just dumb luck. And sometimes, as James Rose demonstrates, you have to fight back against that dumb luck and refuse to let it get the best of you. I'll leave you with that positive thought and I'll see you back here next time. One Step Beyond is written, produced and narrated by Tony Fletcher. Incidental music is by Noel Fletcher, unless otherwise stated. The theme song is by Madness, used with permission, and the logo is by Mark Lerner. Special thanks to Radio Kingston for airing these episodes and for supplying studio space when not under lockdown. If you like what you hear, please consider throwing us a tip via the Support This Show button on your phone or by visiting supporter.acast.com slash one step beyond lowercase. 
You can also hit the subscribe button and or leave a positive rating and or review. It all helps. One Step Beyond is on social media, mainly on Instagram. Just search One Step Beyond with Tony Fletcher there or on Facebook and Twitter and we should come up straight away. To subscribe to a newsletter, to reach out via email and especially if you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, the address is onestepbeyond at ijamming.net. One Step Beyond is available on just about every podcast platform known to man and most likely a few that have yet to be discovered. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy and stay active.